Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. In the past month, we saw the return of some of TV's best shows, so we wanted to remind you about a Recapables feed, where our staff breaks down current episodes from your favorites like Game of Thrones, Killing Eve, and Billions. Also, make sure to check in each week to hear special one-off recaps on shows like The Bold Type, Very Cavalry, Cobra Kai, and more. So as you keep up with your top shows, tune in to the Recapables feed each week on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Game of Thrones Pre-Capitals, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This is the podcast where we preview the Thrones episode to come and, you know, suggest that Grey Worm is totally doomed and the Night King is totally safe at the Battle of Winterfell. Oops. But just as Daenerys turns her eyes from the Great War to the Last War, we're going to keep going too. And today, that means breaking down what to expect in Season 8, Episode 4. I'm Zach Cram, and joining me after a long night that definitely did not last a generation, it's Riley McAtee. It was a fun, long evening. All right, let's preview the next one. Let's start by diving into next on Game of Thrones. Now, Riley, let's start with the logistics here, because I think the culmination of the White Walker arc came a lot earlier than we expected and seems to neatly divide the season into two parts, you know, two chunks of three episodes each. Numbers one, two, and three, basically all about the prep for and the Battle of Winterfell. You know, we got that one scene with Cersei, basically, but that was it. And now it seems like episodes four, five, and six are going to pivot, and it's going to pivot south. We see Cersei in the trailer again for next week. What are the logistics look like for this episode, having just finished episode three with director Miguel Sapochnik? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of seemed like we would pivot south in episode four anyways, though we figured that we would pivot south in defeat. And instead, they're pivoting south in victory and looking forward to the last war between Daenerys, her alliance with Jon, and Cersei and Euron and everyone down there. This episode four now is directed by David Nutter. He did episodes one and two on this season. He did The Red Wedding. He's done several other episodes for Thrones. Less of the big kind of battle episode type of guy that Miguel Sapochnik is. More of a traditional storyteller, I guess. They kind of bring him in to do the nuts and bolts, which is interesting because episode five is another Sapochnik episode. So we kind of figure that this episode four will be a little bit more kind of a regrouping and a table setting for episode five, which could then be another big battle, but this time between Cersei and Daenerys and everybody else instead of with the White Walkers. But there's also reasons to think that this episode could be pretty big and explosive in its own right. It's 78 minutes long, which is almost as long as the last episode. And Miguel Sapochnik kind of had some uh, cryptic comments about how three, four, and five all fit into like one big narrative arc. Yeah, Sapochnik said in an interview with Entertainment Weekly that he initially wanted to direct episodes three, four, and five because, quote, they're a complete piece with the beginning, middle, and end. And on the surface, that sounds kind of weird because starting an arc with the giant battle, the biggest in TV or film history, as Thrones is intent to keep reminding us, is a strange narrative choice, but I think it could potentially work if you go the sort of zigzag approach where 
Three is battle, four is regroup and preparation, five is battle again. But it's also important to consider that, like you said, 78 minutes, that's a lot of time to fill. And compared to last week, where we knew there was going to be a battle, we had an idea of what the plans would look like, what the two armies looked like. We have very little idea of what the general framework of this episode looks like. Even more broadly, we have very little idea of what the general framework of the rest of the season looks like. A lot of the trailer material from before the season that we've been using to analyze has already been used up. It was about the battle versus the dead. And it was obviously intentional. The showrunners didn't want to give away that it would end so quickly. But there's a lot, you know, more than half of the season left if you go by minutes. And we have very little idea of what's going to come. Yeah, if you go back and watch the season eight trailer, there are basically only one or two shots that we haven't yet seen. Almost everything in there is from the first three episodes. So it feels like HBO and the showrunners have kept everything from four, five, and six completely in the dark. And so for Sapochnik to say that three, four, and five are part of one arc is really interesting and and could mean that it's a lot more complicated than we think. So let's dive into what we know is going to be in this episode from the 30-second teaser at the end of last week. See if we can make some light of these clues. It starts with the assembled, and Daenerys says, we have won the Great War, now we will win the last war. First of all, someone you know has got to help come up with more creative names for these battles. But beyond that, do you think this is just as self-explanatory as she's moving on to the next thing? I mean, it definitely seems like that's the conflict, right, is with Cersei, although... They have set up, you know, we still have the question out there of who really is the heir to the Iron Throne? Does it matter? Does it matter that John's a Targaryen? So there's stuff where I don't think that it'll necessarily just be Daenerys versus Cersei. That's the last three episodes. There's going to be different fissures and cracks with the humans who are ostensibly on the same side at play in the final three episodes. I'm sure I'm reading too much into this, but the very titling of these battles hints at almost a sort of naivete from Daenerys, assuming that if she wins the throne against Cersei, that's going to be the last war. Like, if she knows anything about Targaryen history, about Westerosi history, she should know that's not true because, sure, Aegon won the throne, but then he had to conquer Dorne, which took hundreds of years. Then there was the Dance of the Dragons. Then there were various rebellions from big ones like Robert's Rebellion to smaller ones, like involving the Nine Penny Kings, which, you know, are smaller but still happened. Those were battles. It's not like Danny is going to bring peace to the kingdom if she wins the throne. So I wonder if that will be part of what this episode is about. Tyrion last season said we need to start thinking about succession plans, and she was reluctant to do so. I wonder if now that they've won against the existential threat, if that idea comes back up again and she's forced to think about it. Yeah, even her own history. I mean, she conquered Slaver's Bay and then immediately had an insurrection that she had to deal with. Or you think about Robert's Rebellion. He conquered the throne, and it was only a few years later that you had the Greyjoy Rebellion over in the Iron Islands. It would be curious to me if she really thinks that this is a sort of endgame. I wonder if it's more of a rallying cry to call this the last war. You have to remember that Westeros, the whole realm, has been at war for years and years and years now probably would be pretty comforting to say, okay, let's do this one last conquest, and then that's it. Yeah, it could be a branding thing, and I think that bleeds into the next key part of the trailer, which is the folks in Winterfell's Great Hall are toasting Daenerys. As you noted, this makes some sense because they would be dead if not for her dragons. I, you know, They weren't so hyped about her coming north, but it's pretty safe to say that the battle would have gone differently if Danny and her troops and her dragons hadn't been there. The question I have about this is, all right, if she's trying to rally them by saying, great job, we just beat the dead. Now we have one more war to go. Like, 
how committed will the Northern Lords be to her cause? I think this is where the dynamic between Daenerys and Jon and Sansa really matters, because it was one thing to fight the Walkers, who were going to devastate life as everyone knew it. But, you know, for the Northern Lords, things haven't gone so well when they've and their ancestors have marched south to rebel against the person who sits on the Iron Throne. It basically has never worked. A bunch of Northern families are already wiped out. What are the survivors going to do? Are they really going to say, okay, let's take up arms one more time and fight south? Or will they want to stay at home and rebuild their own society? Yeah, I wonder if this scene of them all toasting and Daenerys is the one kind of standing up, raising her cup, if that's a hey, we just won, it's a very innocent, just, you know, let's celebrate type thing. Or if it's them kind of bending the knee and cheering their queen sort of in a a way similar to when they crowned John King in the North. And I'm not really sure. It could go either way. We know that in the last episode, Sansa has that conversation with Tyrion in the crypts where she talks about the Dragon Queen, divided loyalties. And it's clear that she's still thinking of an independent North. But I wonder if everyone else, after having seen the dead and seen the devastation of Daenerys' dragons, kind of feels like if Daenerys wants to be queen of the seven kingdoms, we can't win a war against her. And also she just saved our butts. Maybe we can bend the knee and that'll just be a better deal for everybody. I don't know. Yeah, there were a lot of key players who had conversations in episode two that were interrupted by battle preparations. Danny was talking to Sansa. Things were going well until they weren't. And then Theon arrived and that conversation was cut short. Jon waited until the very moment before the battle to reveal to Danny. His actual identity, the fact that he's the true heir to the throne, that conversation was cut short as the dead arrive and the horns start blowing. So I think those conversations probably have to resume this episode. I'll be interested to see, first of all, how that happens. Will it be Danny or Sansa or John saying we need to resume this conversation? And I also wonder who else will be a part of it. Will Tyrion sit in? Will Varys sit in? Will other people like Brienne maybe sit in and try and offer their advice, will Davos sit in to influence these conversations? Because it seems like, at least with John and Danny, Sansa kind of knows what she's doing, but John and Danny don't really seem to know what they want, and maybe their advisors can help them out. I wonder who will be the first person, other than Bran, Sam, John, or Daenerys, to find out about John's parentage. Because it feels like the type of thing where John would actually, if he does not want the throne, just kind of want to bury it. It's like a complication that doesn't seem like it would matter that much to him. But you can just imagine where if Sansa finds out that Jon is actually the heir to the Iron Throne, how much that complicates things. If Tyrion finds out, you know, he has had a kind of a rocky relationship with Daenerys, even though he's her hand, it it could complicate things there too. You know, you wonder if those beans will spill and who will be the first person to find out and how they will react and how that will kind of cause a domino effect for the rest of the season. If Jon doesn't want people to know, that's where... Sam's knowledge of Danny's potential mad queen tendencies could come into play because he would nudge John and say, hey, remember what we talked about in the crypts? You wouldn't burn people. Right. She did. That might come up again, too. But let's move on to the next part of the trailer. We go south for a bit. We see Euron and Cersei looking over the Golden Company in an area that is bright for the first time in a while on Game of Thrones. Uh, And then we also see another shot of Euron getting down on one knee. So that yields two questions. One, is he proposing? Because he's kind of already done that. Uh, And two, what do we think Cersei's been up to? Is she just waiting to find out what happens or has she been doing more to prepare? I do love that we finally have Cersei back wearing a color. She's wearing this nice red (laughs) instead of just black uh, all the time, which is great. Yeah, I do wonder about Euron because I still 
have that feeling that it's a plot point that the Greyjoys and the Iron Islanders, they pay the iron price. Their whole culture is built around taking things, not buying them, not being rewarded for them. And yet Euron has just, you know, kind of sold himself to to get what he wants. And I wonder if at any point he could harbor an idea of betraying her. But it seems like by the way that he goes onto a knee here, like he's pledging his loyalty to her. You know, he he seems like he's all in. Then we see some ships and those ships you think might be connected to Euron, but actually they have Targaryen sails and there are a bunch of ships. Who knows where she got those ships, but she has them. The question is, where do we think they're sailing to? Obviously, they're going to engage with Cersei's forces, but I would imagine they're not sailing you know, directly to King's Landing. I think there are a few potential landing spots. What do you think the favorite is? One idea could be that they are sailing to the Iron Islands. That's where Yara, we know, is camped out, although she has said that she really doesn't have very many troops or ships left. But I wonder if they'll still want to get her anyways. You know, they need all of the reinforcements they can get. And speaking of reinforcements, they also could be going to get or it could be this person just coming back. But Dario from Marine. We do see Rhaegal fly over the ships. So that would probably indicate that it's not Dario coming from Marine. But I do wonder if he has a role to play. You know, it just seems like the Dothraki seem wiped out. The Unsullied are decimated. It feels like Daenerys' side could use more troops, so I wonder if they'll go everywhere they can. But if I had to put a spot where I think that they're sailing to, I believe it's Dragonstone. It just makes sense tactically. That's why they were there in Season 7. It's close to King's Landing, but not right next to it. It's where Daenerys was born. And we know that there were some sleuths before this season who saw in one of the trailers Daenerys and Jon kind of stand in front of a fireplace. If you look very, very closely at the pattern on the stones, you can tell that it's the same fireplace in Dragonstone that we've seen many times before. So that seems to confirm that John and Danny will end up there this season. Although you never know, it could be HBO and Thrones playing tricks on us, having added a scene that's not actually going to appear. I like that idea a lot for a couple of reasons, both thematic and narrative. First, you know, that's a good launching spot to attack King's Landing. That's where Danny was going to launch from before she had to turn north to deal with the first threat. That's where Aegon the Conqueror launched his Westerosi invasion way back when. And I think that's a key point. You brought this up in the piece you wrote after Sunday night, which was very good. Everyone should go read it. It's basically about what questions come next now that the White Walkers have been defeated. One of the things you bring up is that shortage of troops that Danny now has after they were depleted in the Battle of Winterfell. But as you note, Aegon the Conqueror initially landed at the site that would eventually be known as King's Landing with fewer than 1,600 men. And it didn't matter. No force in Westeros could stand up to him because he had dragons. Danny has dragons, so maybe it doesn't matter that her forces were depleted all that much. She can still roast the Red Keep without probably anything getting in her way. But will she? She said in Season 7 she doesn't want to be Queen of the Ashes when... Alaria and others were urging her to just attack King's Landing immediately. She, on Tyrion's council, said no. Will she have changed her mind, or will she still pursue that course of more caution in dealing with Cersei? It'll be more tempting than ever to just take her dragons and go and, and burn the keep. And even if they're able to do so in a way that doesn't kill that many civilians, it's still a symbol of terror to bring your dragons into King's Landing. You'll be ruling with fear the way that Tyrion advised her not to last season. So I think that that'll be some of the core tension moving forward will be Daenerys's 
possible temptation to use her dragons in that way and Tyrion and others probably advising her for more caution. But at some point it becomes, what other options do you have if you don't have an army? And it's unclear how many troops she has left, but it seems like not many. We should note, of course, that we see both dragons uh, in this trailer. We also see Ghost. So all the mythical creatures, we were worried about their survival odds last episode. It's been confirmed that they're alive. Everyone, you know, save Viserion, who died again when Arya killed the Night King. The problem with ruling by fear, as you note, isn't just that it's not as advisable as, you know, ruling through other emotions, but that makes it really hard to break the wheel. And Danny has talked about that. In this episode, she says of what who we presume is Cersei, we will rip her out root and stem. But what are you putting in place? I think that's where a lot of these conversations will come up in this episode and the episodes to come. We've heard the phrase root and stem a few times on the show, most recently from Arya when she was posing as Walder Frey at the beginning of season seven, and she kills the whole Frey family. She says, you didn't slaughter every one of the Starks. Oh no, that was your mistake. You should have ripped them all out, root and stem. I mean, I guess it seems like Danny is learning from Walder Frey's mistakes inadvertently, but this is obviously phrasing that the show is returning to. There's going to be like a very awkward balance between breaking the wheel and just reconstructing the wheel. You know, if she invades in almost the exact manner that Aegon the Conqueror did, then aren't you just like rebuilding the system that we had for hundreds of years? The root and stem comment is really interesting to me. What root or stem is there with Cersei? She's one person. Zach, I know Mm -hmm. you had thoughts on this. Yeah, it's just weird that they would go every other time root and stem has come up. It's been about a group. Jamie and Rob talk about the root and stem of family. Arya talks about the root and stem of family when she's posing as Walder Frey. There's another quote from Cersei herself who doesn't talk about stem, but she mentions the root that's related to a bunch of people. What are Cersei's root and stem besides like her and the mountain and I guess Kyburn? Like, you're that's on. Less ru- yeah, that's not like roots. That's a, you know a couple weeds that are clumped <laughs> closely together, but they're not conjoined in any way. I wonder what that actually means because I can't imagine it's about like we got to get rid of Jamie and Tyrion because they're Lannisters too. So it's a little bit of awkward phrasing, and I don't know if it was just like one of those lines that's almost written for a trailer just to yes. be exciting at the end when it might not make as much sense in the course of the episode. I think it just sounds badass. I mean, we also could, if we really want to have an in-universe explanation, tie it back into this idea of Daenerys, the marketing genius who needs to, you know, rally the North and be like, come on guys, we're going to, we're going to root out the Lannisters, root and stem. But I'm not sure if it actually makes a lot of sense. Speaking of branding, you know, this is a great segue because Oreo has teamed up with Game of Thrones to create limited edition packaging and cookies embossed with the sigils of three remaining contending houses. We're going to pick a sigil and recap what happened to the house in this last episode. And after this last one, there's no real other choice than Stark. Because guess what, Riley? Arya killed the Night King. She's the prince that was promised, maybe? I'm not sure. I don't know. But winter's over, man. And it wasn't just Arya... Uh, making moves in this episode. There were some mistakes. You know, John came up with a bad battle plan and then he resorted to yelling at a dragon, which people have been making fun of, but honestly, it's kind of relatable. Like he was just so frustrated in the moment. What else can you do but let out a guttural yell? Bran also maybe made some mistakes. He flew via Raven and didn't really do much to help in the war effort, but maybe he saw the future because he stayed alive. He forgave Theon and then he didn't end up dying while the Night King did. And finally, Sansa bonded with Tyrion and annoyed Missandei in the process. 
But there were some really great moments between Sansa and Tyrion in the crypt where, you know, they had been married before and separated for many seasons, but it seems like they have a grudging respect for each other. This episode is just a huge win for the Starks. You know, they defended their home. They've reclaimed it for good. They all live. They didn't necessarily all make best choices or the choices that we would have expected coming into here. You know, John yelling at the dragon really stands out as an odd one, but... They did it. They made it. Winterfell is safe. Now they can turn their attention south. And it really is great to just see all of our favorite characters finally make it after so much of the story has been so tough for the Starks. And they survived their ancestral home, kept it safe. Winterfell has been around for thousands of years, and though it's been ransacked and burned down at various points, it's still around and they have the means to continue to defend it. Good job to the Starks this week. You won the battle in the North. Thanks to Oreo and head to Oreo.com to pledge your fealty to the house of your choice and tune into Game of Thrones on Sundays on HBO. And now let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Filling out your small council can be challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash recap. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, listeners of the pre-capitals can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash recap. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-E-C-A-P. ZipRecruiter.com slash recap. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Next, Riley, we're going to move into the theory of the week. And as the show moves south, so will we. Because this week, the theory is the Valonqar. The Valonqar has not been mentioned on the show, but it plays a huge role in the books. What is it? Show watchers will recall from season five, the only non-brand flashback the show has ever had is when Cersei goes into the woods, meets this woods witch named Maggie, and Maggie delivers to Cersei a prophecy where she tells her that she'll marry the king. She tells her that she'll have three children. Gold will be their crowns. Gold will be their shrouds. And she tells her that a younger queen, more beautiful, will rise up to overthrow her. In the books, there's one other element to this prophecy, which is she says, quote, when your tears have drowned you, the Valonqar shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. Valonqar is a high Valyrian word. It means little brother. And Cersei has lived her entire life believing that Tyrion, her little brother, is this Valonqar who is going to kill her. But we know that prophecies can be really tricky in Thrones. So, of course, there's a lot of different theories about who the real Valonqar could be. So let's break down the candidates one by one. The first and most obvious candidate is Tyrion, who has had the most acrimonious relationship possible with his sister. They've each threatened to kill each other on multiple occasions. They've maybe tried on multiple occasions in Cersei's case. And like you said, this is her interpretation of the prophecy, and it informs how she treats Tyrion throughout her life. But it almost seems too obvious to be Tyrion. So a lot of fans believe that Jamie Lannister is actually the Valonqar who will kill Cersei. There's a few key points of evidence here. The first one is that though the two are twins, Jamie was born second. So he is technically her younger brother. And Jamie has also 
obviously decided that Cersei is not necessarily right for him anymore. He has left her side in both the books and the show at this point. And that means there's the potential that he could go completely in the other direction and end up ending her life. And it would make a lot of sense, too, if Jamie were to kill Cersei, even without this prophecy being present in the show. Just from a storytelling narrative sense, it would wrap up both of their arcs really perfectly. You know, Jamie stood by Cersei for so long, by this woman that he loved, even as it became more and more clear that she was descending into madness and basically evil and terrible. He, he stuck around until really the very end of last season. And so if he comes back now and he kills her, it's kind of this perfect poetic end. Cersei ends up getting killed by her once lover due to her own actions to drive him away. And Jamie gets this redemption finally, you know, ridding himself and the world of this horrible evil. He would also add to his nicknames. In addition to Kingslayer, he would be the Queenslayer as well, saving the realm again. And that would be a nice way to to take his names full circle. One counterpoint to this idea is that the theory specifically mentions hands, plural, that would choke Cersei. Could he use the golden hand or does the fact that he only has one real hand now mean that he cannot be the candidate? I personally think that that would almost be an even cooler twist because Remember when Jamie returns from his adventures with the Riverland, missing a hand, Cersei almost thinks less of him for it. So that would almost be an even cooler way to say, actually, it still doesn't matter. He can use this new hand crafted for him to bring this relationship to a close. I like the idea. Book readers have the theory that he will take the chain of the hand. In the in the books, the hand of the king doesn't get the little pin that they get in the show. They get kind of a, a necklace that's made out of hands that all grasp each other. And he could take that and he could basically strangle Cersei with it, with hands. Like Tyrion uh, did with Shay. The same way that Tyrion did with Shay. Yes, exactly. I think that for the show, you know, if he just takes his one hand or his one hand and the gold hand and strangles her, that works enough. Prophecy fulfilled. But he's not the only candidate because a, another key part of the prophecy is that the specific line from Maggie said the Valonqar, not your Valonqar. In other words, it's just a little brother. It doesn't have to be specifically Cersei's little brother. So there are a couple other candidates who arise. One of them is the Hound. I personally think this would make a lot more sense in the books because the idea is that in the books, Cersei's trial with the High Sparrow hasn't yet occurred. The idea is that she'll call a trial by combat and use the mountain as her champion, while the High Sparrow will call on the Hound. Readers exactly. Readers believe that the Hound is rehabbing from his injuries at a kind of monastery in the Riverlands. So if the Hound beats the mountain, Cersei would be declared guilty and sentenced to execution. Voila. Obviously too late for that in the show. Do you think it could still work? It wouldn't be as satisfying for the Hound to do it. Even though he was obviously Joffrey's sworn shield for a good chunk of the early part of the show, he really didn't act, interact very much with Cersei. He doesn't have any personal animosity with her the way that someone like Jaime does or even like Tyrion does if we just want to go for the obvious candidate. But at the same time, as we saw last episode, this show loves to subvert expectations. So perhaps while we're all thinking that Jamie or Tyrion could be the one to kill Cersei, you know, the Hound just comes in and takes that axe and chops her head off, which, I mean, maybe it actually would be kind of satisfying. But there are even further possibilities because remember what Daenerys learned from her conversation with Melisandre on Dragonstone last season. In High Valyrian, the prince, in the prince that was promised, was a genderless noun as 
Miss Sunday informs them that could also mean princess that was promised. Could Valencar be similar? That would open up a whole host of new younger siblings because then you'd have younger sisters in addition to younger brothers. There's an obvious younger sister who just killed a key villain, wants to kill Cersei. Could Arya be the Valencar? I just, I mean, if she gets the Night King and Cersei, that would be really wild. Granted, Cersei is a name on Arya's list. She's only got two left. It's Cersei in the Mountain. So, I mean, perhaps she gets one of those two, but it feels like the Mountain should be killed by the Hound. Cersei should be killed by Tyrion or Jaime. And that if Arya gets too many of these big moments, it's like, hey, hey, share the love a little bit. Although, remember last season, Arya was about to head south for King's Landing to kill Cersei. That's what she revealed her plans to be. And then Hot Pie informed her what was going on at Winterfell, and she decided to head north. Even Bran was surprised. Even Bran, when they ran into each other, said, I thought you were headed south to King's Landing. I agree with you that it would be a little strange if Arya ends up killing both of the main villains in season eight. But the fact that Bran thought she was going to King's Landing, maybe he saw the future and, you know, maybe saw her heading to King's Landing just at the wrong time. He misjudged when that would be. I think that's a possibility at this point because it's unclear how much Bran really is able to harness and understand what he sees about the future. He could have gotten those timelines mixed up. I could see that. I, I do I do feel like that kind of makes me think that Arya, in choosing to go north instead of south, kind of gave up her chance to kill Cersei. It's like, can she go north and help Jon and help her family and then also go south and kill Cersei as well? It kind of felt like she made a choice to not kill Cersei, and now the opportunity to do that should go to someone else. There are lots of other younger siblings who could conceivably fit this prophecy who don't have as compelling claims. Like, you have Danny, who's a younger sister. Yara's a younger sister. John and Sansa, like even Euron is technically a younger sibling, although he seems so devoted to Cersei at this point, who knows? One question I have about this whole prophecy is, as you said, another element of it was this quote from Maggie, quote, you'll be queen for a time. Then comes another, younger, more beautiful, to cast you down and take all you hold dear. Could that younger and more beautiful queen and the Valonqar be the same person? That would mean Danny or Sansa could potentially fit both. Like it would be really fitting if Sansa comes full circle after being brutalized by Cersei for a while. You know, remember at the Blackwater how Cersei was just intimidating her that entire night. What if she, now that she's come into her own, is able to fulfill both parts of this prophecy? I think that's possible. Arya did just teach Sansa how to use a dagger. Uh, there we go. So, so I guess it's all lined up for Sansa to do it. Cersei believed that the younger, more beautiful queen was Marjorie, which made a lot of sense when Marjorie was in King's Landing. And we kind of always thought, well, it must be Daenerys, who Cersei was not as aware of at the time. And it kind of influences why Cersei is so hostile to Marjorie, why she's just so over the top negative toward her. That to me is always one of the things that's the most interesting about prophecy in this show is the way that whether people are correct or incorrect in their interpretations of it, it can influence the character's actions and actually make things come true or just lead their lives in different directions. You know, you see this with Stannis and you see it certainly with Cersei here. But I'm into the idea of it being Sansa or Daenerys being the same person who's the younger, more beautiful queen. And there's one other element of the prophecy that informs a possibility here because the last option we want to talk about is that Cersei's pregnancy will actually end up killing her. The technical younger sibling to Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella 
could kill her either in childbirth or some sort of complication because that other part of the prophecy said Cersei would have three kids. Now, the show has already played with this. In season one, they invented a child for her that she talks about when she's consoling Cat Stark about Bran's fall from the tower. And she also mentions it in a one-on-one scene with Robert later on. She says that they had a kid and the kid died very young. Now, the people involved with the show have since clarified like, oh, that didn't count for the prophecy because the baby died so young and nobody really knew about it. That seems like they kind of just messed up because like it was a royal baby. People would have known about it. So maybe there's something wrong with this three child prophecy anyway. But if it's true, if Cersei can really only have three kids, that means this fourth kid isn't going to be born or it's going to be born after she's dead. And then that won't count. I just can't see how she'll get the chance to to birth the child because it feels like I don't know if there are a good nine or eight or seven or six months left before Daenerys and her forces arrive in King's Landing. And we've got to figure that Cersei and company probably lose in the end and she probably loses her life as a result. And so I'm not sure if there's just enough time basically for Cersei to have a pregnancy and carry a child to term. She's not really showing based on the teaser trailers, so we figure it's probably still pretty early in her pregnancy. You know, it could be that she dies in childbirth, but I think it's more likely that she just doesn't get the chance to have that kid in the first place. And it occurs to me we should discuss the last real possibility, which is the show hasn't mentioned the Valonqar prophecy because they don't intend to see it through. I think we've both believed that the reason they didn't mention the Valonqar is, like, if it's Jamie, for instance, they wouldn't want to foreshadow that so heavily because then everyone would kind of assume like oh jamie might actually be the one to kill her Uh, they would want to leave it more in the shadows but maybe they just don't intend to see it through maybe cersei doesn't die maybe she dies another way maybe she wins who knows we will find out going forward but i think we probably would both pick jamie if we had to just for all the reasons we mentioned I but maybe would. not the show's subverting our expectations left and right there's a line between subverting expectations and also giving fan service and it usually likes to do both at once and i can't find a way where it could subvert expectations about cersei's death in a way that would also be fan service in the way that kind of arya killing the night king is so i have to think it'll be jamie and if not jamie tyrion i just can't think that it's something other than one of those two. Perhaps it's John or Danny or someone. I guess that could also be a lot of fun, but it does feel like Jamie makes the most sense. So let's go into the next topic for this episode, Keys to the Game, where regular listeners will know we each pick one key character for the next episode and offer three lines for them to achieve their ambitions to better set themselves up for the episode to come. I'll go first. My key player this week is John. The first key I, w- I want to offer him is you have to decide what you want to do next. John has been thinking only about the walkers for so long now. What does he do now that they're defeated? He hasn't really afforded himself the opportunity to think beyond that. As he tells Davos in season seven, like, oh, I can't even think about loving Danny because I'm only concerned about the Night King. Now, obviously, you know, Danny found a way into his heart anyway, but There are complications there, too. He has to decide what he wants next. Will he challenge for the throne? Does he want the North to be pledged to her, or will he listen to Sansa and try to make it independent? I think that's the first thing he needs to decide before he can even address anything else. Uh, Yeah, I feel like with Jon, he has been, since being resurrected, so consumed by the Night King that it'll be really interesting to see him in this episode finally not 
feel like he has to live for that purpose and can for the first time in several seasons decide what it is that he wants to do next. Number two is pick your spots better for choosing when to talk about important things, which in this case means have the talk with Danny before you engage Cersei in battle because you have to start setting these plans in motion or else if you beat Cersei in battle, you're going to be looking up at the Iron Throne and thinking like, all right, which one of us sits on the thing? Like that would be really awkward and probably set the new regime up to fail from the first step. And number three is even if he decides he wants to contend for the throne or presumably, you know, sail south with Danny to engage in that battle, he has to set up rebuilding in the north now with whoever remains behind for a few reasons. One, the north ended up being the only region in Westeros that was mangled by the Night King. So he has to figure out how to rebuild that region because even if he's just the warden of the north and not the king as he was named, that's still his territory and responsibility. There are plenty of vacated castles in the region. The Dreadfort, where the Boltons were, Last Hearth, where the Umbers were, Bear Island, where the Mormonts were, Carhold, where the Karstarks were, all of those might be abandoned now. He needs to figure out what to do with them. Also, he needs to figure out, is he going to call his people to another war just after this one? Maybe they'd follow him if he asked, but that's a lot of burden to put on his followers after they've fought so much already and the Battle of the Bastards and the Battle of Winterfell. And, you know, a lot of these families lost a bunch of members at the Red Wedding, too. Let them be in peace for once. They do hate the Lannisters, though. It might be enough to go get rid of Cersei. My key is Tyrion, speaking of Lannisters. The first key I have for him is that his record at strategizing against Cersei has been really poor. He sent the Greyjoy fleet to go get the Dornish armies. That obviously ended in disaster when Euron destroyed the fleet. He went to go take Casterly Rock, and Cersei and Jaime left it empty, just a completely worthless pawn. And while they were taking Casterly Rock, they lost the Reach, and they lost Highgarden and the Tyrells. So it has been a huge disaster for Tyrion fighting this war against his sister. So I'm curious to see if he can finally outwit her and get the upper hand. Don't forget him thinking that she was going to help them in the north and being completely bamboozled when every single other person was like, don't trust her. Right. He, he tells everyone, no one distrusts my sister as much as me, except he's the one who negotiated the deal with her and then immediately gets burned by it. Very bad look for Tyrion. So hopefully he can rebound. My second key for him is that he has been one of the primary people that is cautioning Danny about using her dragons in Westeros, burning King's Landing, etc. And as we kind of said at the top of the show, Danny may be more tempted to use her dragons in King's Landing on the Red Keep than she ever has been. And so his position there as her advisor trying to negotiate a more peaceful transfer of power in Westeros will be very crucial. Then my third key is Bronn is coming north. We've all forgotten about this dude. In the first episode, they sent him with a wagon of gold north to go kill Jamie and Tyrion. And I really wonder what will happen. You know, Tyrion famously said, whatever their offer is, I'll double it. Telling Bronn, anytime someone tries to buy you off to kill me, remember, I'm the richest person in Westeros or one of them, and I will double it. But I don't know if he can double it when it's Cersei paying Bronn. And Cersei has the Iron Throne and the Red Keep and everything else. And Tyrion is just the hand of the the queen. But... I wonder if he will find a way to 
talk to Braun to maybe bring Braun around to their side or just what will happen with that interaction in general when Braun does finally meet up with these people. I'm very curious about that last part. We've seen zero inkling of Braun in any of the preview material. We've had zero mention of Braun since that first episode, which makes sense because we've been entirely in the North. But we were both wondering, like, is Braun going to show up at any point? He obviously did not. There's obviously a reason they threw that into the first episode because you know, they're everything's so compressed now, everything has to matter. So I wonder what will come of that. Will like Mallory Rubin's theory that maybe Braun shoots a crossbow bolt and that kills Brienne and that's what spurs Jamie to become the Valonqar and kill Cersei. Maybe that will happen, but it's hard to come up with feasible scenarios that make storytelling sense at this point. I still think the best scenario that makes the most sense to me is that Braun takes that money, you know, they said he was paid up front and he just goes and he retires in Dorne. I would love it. I I said that on a previous pod and I stick by it. Let's go, Braun, just retire. I hope we don't see Braun again this week. So on next week's pod, you can just offer this theory again and continue to do so until we finally figure out you're right. I will speak it into existence. We'll just never (laughs) see Braun again. Speaking of predictions, this brings us nicely into our last segment of the show where we don't have a big battle coming this week. So instead of going character by character to predict whether they will live or die, you know, as poorly as that went for us last week. Yeah, real bust for us. Yes, we're returning to... The way we've typically done it, where we each offer two predictions, one that we think will happen and one that we think maybe won't happen, but want to see in this next episode. Riley, what do you think will happen? So I think that we will learn about some new plan that Cersei and company will have to kill the dragons. There's still, as we've talked about, this fundamental power imbalance. Daenerys can just come with her dragons and burn everything to the ground. We saw it at the Battle of the Loot Train. The Lannisters got absolutely decimated. I don't know how the Golden Company really changed the formula, which is that dragons beat armies. There's just no way around it. So whether that means that they've been building bunch of those big crossbows you know Braun almost took out drogon with just one of those things perhaps they have hundreds of them now if they've just been manufacturing them nonstop, or it's something else maybe euron has a secret in the books he claims to have a horn called dragon binder that can subject a dragon to his will if he blows it it's unclear if he's just kind of boasting about something that might not be true or if he actually does a magical horn like that i don't know if something that magical will appear in the show at this point feels a little late but perhaps there's a different wild card like that perhaps the golden company do know something about killing dragons you know they're from essos they have a connection to the targaryens via the Blackfires, which are targaryen bastards from many decades ago and maybe they know something that that we don't about dragon killing, but I'm not sure what it will be, but I think we'll find out something that can kind of even the playing field a little bit for Cersei and her armies when Daenerys comes knocking. Remember that Euron built a fleet of, what, 10,000 ships? And that was from the Iron Islands, which has seemingly no trees. So imagine just how many hundreds of thousands of crossbows he could have built in that span while they were just waiting to find out who won the battle in the north. What I think will happen in this episode is actually a won't. I think something won't happen. And that something is the idea that we're going to learn more from Bran in this episode. I hope I'm wrong, but the deaths last week of the Night King, all the walkers, all the undead, Beric, Melisandre, in the same episode really makes it seem to me like they're dialing fully back on the fantasy and pivoting 100% to the more grounded realpolitik of the whole show. And Riley, as you reminded me, 
in director Nutter's Reddit AMA from last year where he was asked about the coming season. One of the little nuggets he dropped was that there would be no time travel in any of his episodes. Now, using the word time travel, maybe he's prevaricating a bit and saying like, oh, well, a flashback doesn't count as time travel. But it seems unlikely to me that we're going to learn more from Bran, either about like the Night King's purpose or his own purpose or anything that might happen. I think a lot of people were wondering, like, what was Bran doing last episode when his eyes were rolled back in his head? I just don't think we're going to find any answers. Yeah, I'm with you. It feels like they have left the fantasy and magical portions of the show in the past. What do you want to happen, even if you think it might not? So in, in any movie or television, I'm just a huge sucker for an Ocean's Eleven style getting the gang together type of montage. And I kind of hope that we get that in this episode. As we've said, Daenerys and her alliance is very low on troops and resources to fight this last war. So perhaps they can go recruit Dario. They can go get Robin Aaron from the Vale. They can get Edmure Tully from wherever he is. They can go get Yara from the Iron Islands. They can go get Mira Reed and her father, Howland, who has not yet appeared in the current timeline on the show, from the Neck. And they can kind of go around from place to place and gather up a, a, a nice crew of kind of forgotten characters that can help them in this final conflict. I love that idea that we're just going to completely change genres at this point and get like John going and tapping someone on the shoulder and be like, hey, we got a job for you. We can get like a guitar riff in the background. Yeah, yeah. Something cool like that. It's just one scene. All right. You know, that would certainly not help with the concerns about jetpacking across the continent. No, I, I like the fun. I like where your mind's at. I, I want it to be a version of when they went to all the different northern lords before mm -hmm. the Battle of the Bastards, but more fun and a little quicker since we only have three episodes left. All right, Zach, what do you want to happen? This relates to what you think will happen, actually. Uh, I want to see the Golden Company do something because, you know, there's the whole idea of show don't tell. And yet we've only heard about the Golden Company's accomplishments in battle. We've never seen it. More than that, we haven't seen anything thus far to make them seem at all formidable, especially after John and Danny and everyone just defeated the Army of the Dead. It's hard to go, you know, two further extremes than the Army of the Dead. We saw at Hardhome. We saw at the Lake Battle. We saw overrunning the battlements at Winterfell to this Golden Company that we've heard good things about, but it's hard to imagine that after defeating the Walkers, the heroes will have any trouble with the Golden Company. So I want to see them do something or to learn a little bit more about maybe they're a red herring and the show will conclude not with another big battle. I think that's a possibility to look for in the end game. I'm curious to see if we get any clues about that this week. They don't even have elephants. They don't even have elephants. And that is a huge disappointment. I hope that's what we get from Cersei this week is just more muttering about elephants. But that's it for us this time. As always, don't forget to rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or theories you want us to break down, write into the recapables at gmail.com and we'll try to answer them on the show. Be sure to read all of our written coverage this week. Riley asked 10 big questions and analyzed whether Sansa and Tyrion could become the new political power couple. I wrote about the disappearance of fantasy elements from the show and discussed the concept of complexity and whether the last three episodes can deliver on that front. And of course, tune in to Talk the Thrones with Mal, Jason, and Chris live on Twitter every Sunday night after the episode airs for more instant analysis. We'll be back next week. Until then, enjoy episode four. As Doctor Strange would say, we're in the endgame now. <laughs> <laughs>